Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And today we're bringing you one of the best known guests in all of true crime. We'll introduce him in just a moment. But first, we dive back into the Dan Markell murder case. He, of course, is the Harvard-educated FSU law professor gunned down in his Tallahassee driveway back in 2014. Two hitmen and a go-between are already convicted of the crime and are in prison. Ex-brother-in-law Charlie Adelson. Guess what? The trial begins Today, it is underway. Uh, he stands accused of putting the hit on his ex-brother-in-law, Dan Markell, and we are going to dive right in. You know the face, because I told you he was coming on on Friday, and STS Nation was all worked up over Vinny's blue eyes. Here he is, Court TV's main anchor, Vinny Paltan. He is an Emmy Award-winning legal journalist who is a popular face on the original Court TV leading uh, the network's coverage of the nation's most compelling trials. He's a lawyer and a former prosecutor. He's reported on these stories for well over 20 years. His dad, if you didn't know, was a federal judge and his older brother, a partner at a large national law firm. Obviously, uh, Vinny, like myself, is the black sheep of his family. He is uh, from the great state of New Jersey, which is uh, one of his best uh, attributes. He's covered it all. Alec Murdoch, Johnny Depp, Scott Peterson, Michael Jackson, Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman, the list goes on. Uh, and then we've got, of course, the voice of reason here, Lieutenant Retired Carl, uh, Carl Steinbeck, a nearly 30-year judge advocate for the U.S. Army, Judge Advocate General Corps. Uh, he served his nation proudly, both as uh, an attorney, but also uh, as an infantryman. And he is uh, the host of his own YouTube channel, Jury Trial Mentor, with his brother, John Steinbeck. And last but not least, the affable Jeremy Mutz is back. It's been a while. He is a criminal defense, family law, and div divorce attorney. He has very strong ties to Tallahassee, having been a prosecutor there. And he is the author of multiple books, which we'll have him tell you about as we get into uh, the mix today. Uh, quick note, Charlie Adelson turns 47 years old next week uh, it's been over nine years since this crime took place he has charges of first degree murder conspiracy and solicitation for allegedly hiring the two hitmen from miami near my neighborhood who stalked and killed dan markell who of course is charlie adelson's former brother-in-law that was back in 2014 uh vinny is with us till the bottom of the hour so we're going to go vinny heavy at the beginning and then we'll let the two other guys get their fair share of time. But Vinny, do you think that Charlie Adelson ever thought this day would arrive, that he'd be caught and uh, cornered? Here's here are my thoughts. You know, when, when you know that they're looking at you and, and, and you know the investigation is continuing, but you hadn't been arrested year after year after year, I think there's a sense that, you know, this, this may never happen because how much does the evidence really change, right? The evidence is what it is. Um, and it didn't seem like there was going to be any new evidence. And I, I think there was a level, I wouldn't call it confidence, but but my, my, my gut is telling me there was a little bit of swagger that he probably started to have as the years went by. But at this point, the swagger is gone. Reality has set in. 
and it's going to get very, very real inside that courtroom. Yeah, and I was just uh, reading some old testimony from June Mchinda, one of his ex-girlfriends, and he said that once uh, Luis Rivera and Sigfredo Garcia, and then, of course, subsequently Katie McBana were, were arrested, Charlie's demeanor noticeably changed. He became very depressed, never changed after that moment, because I think at that point he knew he was caught. Um, Jeremy Mutz, to you, uh, jury selection underway and 900 possible jurors were summoned to the Leon County Jail today, uh, to the courthouse, I should say, and uh, they're being vetted uh, during this process known as voir dire. Uh, is that a number that is typical, or is that an extraordinary large number for the Leon County Courthouse, 900 possible jurors? That's extraordinarily large for the courthouse. Uh, it's almost astronomically large for what's normally done there. Your typical felony in Leon County, they might bring in 25, 30 jurors, you know, even on a homicide case, maybe, maybe just 60 or so. So that's extraordinary. Um, even most typical homicides in Leon County, you might have trial last a week. This one's going to last three, you know, jury selection is going to last probably three days in this case. Um, normally it's, a half day or a day. Um, so, and that, that goes to the complexity of this case, of course, but it also goes to the, the amount of media coverage. Uh, number one question the judge is going to ask is, uh, you know, in the top five questions he's going to ask, what do you know about this case? And have you made a firm fixed opinion about it? And that's a lot of the media coverage that just has to go with a case like this. Uh, Carl Steinbeck, to you, by the way, Dom's mom, so freaking cool. Hello, Vinny, sir. Thanks for joining us on the best true crime podcast there is, not to be confused with the best true crime show that is Vinny's on the television, uh, followed here by uh, Miss Milky the Clown. Fantastic. Vinny is the boss. Yes, he is. And I kid, Vinny's not the black sheep of his family. Only I am. Vinny's a star of his family. Uh, Vinny, to you. I'm sorry, Carl, to you. Then we'll get back to Vinny. Uh, Judge Everett, um, he is vetting some of these potential jurors um, about the media attention that this case got. Judge Everett to a potential juror said, and I quote here, can you set aside your present knowledge and disregard it and render a verdict solely on the evidence that is presented in the courtroom? Can you be fair an impartial uh, Carl Steinbeck. That is a question he's going to ask many of these 900 prospective jurors. Will he get honest answers? And how does how do they know? I I trust the jury trial system we have here in America. It's the best thing in the world. Most countries in the, in the world don't have this opportunity to have people from the public domain that are randomly selected to sit on the jury and decide your guilt or innocence. And also, we have all these legal protections of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And so a jury can even think somebody did it, but they're very, they're very solid about making sure that their evidence is there to make them go home and, and sleep well at night knowing they didn't convict an innocent person. And it's part of our premise of our legal system is it's worse to convict an innocent person than, than to convict the guilty person. So with those protections built in, I think um, we won't even get to the 900 um, by a long shot because I think that most folks have probably not heard about this, haven't really ha formed opinions on it. Um, just looking at the uh, data metrics from um, our YouTube channel, Jury Trial Mentor, uh, for example, out of, uh, I think it was last I saw, 127,000 views, we only had 81 out of Tallahassee. So I don't, I don't really think the 
uh, Tallahassee folks are really covering this at all for the most part. So I think they'll get a jury uh, select a lot quicker than expected. So I think it's more the national following that's uh, pretty much generated the, the real interest in this. Yeah, and I've talked to Ch- uh, Tim Jansen today, who's uh, making his way uh, out of the hospital. Thankfully, he's feeling a little bit better. He thinks jury selection will run two to three days. I've read reports it could be three to four days. I don't think anyone realized it was going to be this vast uh, a jury pool, so they've got to chisel their way through it. Uh, Kimber Miller says, I've been waiting on this one all day. Best guest, STS. I won't embarrass Vinny much more than I already have, but uh, needless to say, the comments are very favorable, and especially for those blue eyes. Uh, right off the bat, someone was asking Vinny, uh, and I just scooted right past it. Vinny, what do you think here it is from uh, Armand Fence. What does Vinny think Charlie's defense is going to be? Well, there's a couple of different ways you can go. I, I really think if the defense is being honest with themselves, they have to acknowledge that this jury is going to believe that it is someone in the Adelson family who ordered this hit. Okay? They have to. Why would these two guys drive all the way up from, from South Florida? Why would they? They have no connection, no nexus. This wasn't a robbery. This was a murder for hire. So um, logic tells you that it, it has to be someone from the Adelson family, someone in her circle. And I think the defense would need to acknowledge that. Not that they're going to necessarily admit it in front of the jury, but acknowledge it. And and maybe what you try to do, which is going to be kind of interesting, is, is raise the possibility that it wasn't Charlie. Was it Wendy? Was it Donna? Was it Harvey? Was it, you know, I, I really think that's the only chance that the defense has. And, and this is something else I've talked about on my show. And I don't know. I don't know what the level of love Donna has for Charlie, right? Many mothers will say, I'll give my life for my child, right? Will she? Will she attempt to do that? Will she attempt to give her life for her child, Charlie, and and get up on the witness stand and say, I did it? I ordered it? I paid her? I paid McManwood to give them the money? because I wanted those grandkids down in South Florida. Charlie had nothing to do with it. And then to explain Charlie's actions, uh, suspicious actions on the recordings, et cetera, uh, maybe you say, well, I told him afterwards. He knew afterwards about what I had done. I mean, that's to me, that's the only defense where I think you have a chance, because I can't imagine, unless they bring back the jurors, the 12 jurors from the Casey Anthony trial, I don't think there's any way you could bring a jury in there and not believe that the Adelsons are connected to this obvious murder for hire. It's obvious. Tuto Tato had nada to do with Professor Markell. 100% agree with Vinnie Politan on that. Um, the Dolce Vita tapes, of course, we know and the Matsuri tapes are the closest thing to a smoking gun. Uh, Jeremy, what about what Vinny just said? Do you think there's any chance someone like Don? Well, Don is not on the witness list anymore, but let's say someone else gets up there and takes the fall uh, or they the defense is to put the blame on another family member. Do you think that there's any chance that happens or is Charlie, you know, too narcissistic, too arrogant 
and we'll uh, try to take the stand, which and we'll dive all back into this, trying to get the Vinny take on all this before uh, the time ticks away. But what do you think about what Vinny said, Jeremy? It just takes one reasonable doubt in the mind of one juror, and you have a hung jury. And you know, it just takes one reasonable doubt, and you could convince the entire panel. And I think that's what he's counting on. I mean, I think his personality, he probably thinks he can roll the dice. He has a shot at it. And even if he loses, he has a shot at appeals and things like that. That's the kind of personality we're talking about. We're also talking about defense attorneys that they don't consider them. They don't walk into the courtroom thinking about how about if we lose this. They go in to win. And, uh, you know, I'm 100 percent rooting for the prosecution in this, but it's a highly circumstantial case. And if you want to uh, build the defense on that, I think it, it can be pretty strong to just one one piece at a time attack what the state has and knock it out as circumstantial. Now, now we all, I think, would agree that sometimes circumstantial cases are the strongest cases. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, witnesses may dissemble, memories may fade, but circumstances never lie. But if I'm defending Charlie, I'm going to try to attack every single piece and say there's nothing directly that shows my client orchestrated this. And they could even try to go a step into the the other family did this and he got into this only to protect his mother because his mother called him upset that somebody's trying to blackmail her. And so all of his communications on the tapes are trying to protect the family once this got out. But it was it was somebody else. And uh, I think the fact that he's taken his parents off the witness list says he's still trying to protect them. Um, but I think the reasonable doubt will be where he'll try to go. Uh, Carl Steinbeck, just uh, anything to add on to what Vinny was saying about, uh, you know, possibly a family member taking the fall for Charlie or and or the defense pivoting that way, saying, hey, uh, this was a murder for hire, but uh, our Charlie Adelson had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's some good points there that Vinny has. I think the real problem with that, though, is something that we brought up on the other show of yours, Joel, which was that keep in mind that. Um, Rashbaum has previously represented Donna and Harvey, and by doing so, he can never point the finger at them unless they give consent to do so, which would be really bizarre in and of itself. So um, so I think if they're going to point the finger at somebody, it's going to be Wendy, and I think that Wendy is the one that also met with uh, Katie as well beforehand um, in the months prior, and we have the photos from the beach to confirm that. So if they're going to point the finger at one of the Adelsons, um, but I think if you're one degree of separation and that's your sister, I, I think a, a jury is just going to look at really the Dolce Vita tape and where Donna herself says, you know, it has to do with you and me when they're talking about um, this bump matter. And the reason she knew it had to do with her and Charlie was because in the bump um, note was also a cutout of the newspaper from the Tallahassee Democrat that was uh, their front page headlines talking about a Florida state law professor being gunned down in his garage. So there's, there's no way out of this thing. I, I think common sense will just, uh, will just carry the day easily for the prosecution because anything the defense is going to throw up, I think is, is pretty outrageous and ludicrous. Uh, Chelsea Whitaker, how do you spell Epic Vinnie Politan in all caps on STS best guest hashtag Vinnie's blue eyes. I said I would embarrass him, but it's too hard not to because uh, all the comments are coming this way. Hey, hey, STS Nation, look at this panel. Best looking guest in true crime. Oh, boy. 
Oh boy. Love Vinny. I can't, I can't avoid it. Uh, Vinny, let's uh, kind of go a little more macro here. You've covered just about every major case over the last 20 something years. Um, number one, why the intense media scrutiny with the Dan Markell case? Some cases pop, some don't. Why is the uh, world uh, at attention when it comes to this case? Well, I think it starts with the victim, Dan Markell, who he was, you know, uh, a prestigious, brilliant legal mind, great guy, a dad. Then the story behind what was going on in his life at the time of the murder, and then the intrigue about who would who would hire someone to kill him. And unfortunately, this is not the only case that we're covering right now, as a matter of fact, involving um, custody battles. This is, you know, when you go to a courthouse, a lot of people, you know, generally think the most dangerous place in a courthouse is the criminal courtroom. And it's not. It, it's family court. That's where emotions take over and people do things that are extremely irrational and sometimes deadly and dangerous. Uh, as a matter of fact, just recently, uh, there was a judge who was uh, allegedly killed by a, a father who was in a custody battle and was the judge handling the case. So emotions take over. And, and I think that's where the interest comes in is the um, interaction and the, the drama between uh, a mom and dad fighting over the custody of their children. Obviously, everyone loves the children, but in some weird way, there's a twist and someone believes the solution to this whole thing is, is murder. And how do you get to that point? So I think that's where the, the intrigue uh, in this one really comes from. And, you know, Jeremy mentioned that the 900 jurors, that's kind of like standard for court TV trials that we cover, the, you know, the big ones like this. You know, when you talk about the, uh, the top 20% of the cases that we cover, the big ones, um, that's, that's, a, that's a number. But they always can get a jury. They always can. And it's my father was a federal judge. And, and, and this is something I think that's a little bit of a secret in the legal world is that the pace of jury selection in any case, and even especially the high profile cases, is controlled 1000 percent by the judge who is determining uh, juror by juror who can be fair and impartial and is making those calls. And some judges really, you know, kind of struggle with it. And they other judges like they're in charge. They say, oh, you heard about it, but you can still be fair, right? Right. You can be fair. And they say, yeah, OK, next, next. And they get it done quickly. So um, it's, it's fascinating to watch. You know, in the Murdoch case, jury selection was super fast for that case. That's the biggest case that state ever had. So um, I'm, I'm confident we're going to get a good jury. We're going to get a fair jury. Uh, the judge will be able to do it. And at the end of the day, I think there's going to be a lot of interest and intrigue in trying to figure out the dynamics of what was happening within the Adelson family. Agree with that. Um, to the point of that uh, massive jury pool, uh, back to you, Jeremy. So the very first prospective juror who Judge Everett spoke to, and by the way, this is a new judge this go around, uh, female juror, she said she saw a lone TV news report about the Dan Markell case, she said perhaps last year, but she had not formed an opinion about Charlie Adelson because, quote unquote, I don't know who he is, which probably hurt his ego a little bit. She said she would absolutely be able to serve as a fair and impartial juror in the case. Um, 
this is a tedious process, Jeremy, but Vinny just said, you know, even with these high profile cases, they always land a jury. Uh, I don't think this will, you know, there'll be any doubt in this case. But do you think um, Tim Jansen is on the money here when he says two to three days or you think it's going to be closer to Friday before we see a jury? I think two or three days. And I think it's helped by the fact that Georgia Kappelman um, is a pro at this. This is not her first time doing a case like this. It's the third such case that she's had on the Dan Markell uh, murder. Um, and I think Judge Everett, from what I know about him, I appeared in front of him when he was new on the bench as a county court judge. He's very steady, very firm. He runs his courtroom. I think he'll he'll move this along, um, even if it goes longer and there may be some more motions that have to be argued. I still think we would have opening statements uh, Thursday and uh, at the latest Thursday afternoon. And I think he's going to move it forward. And, uh, you know, but it is difficult to find, you know, 12 that are going to be people that have never heard of the case. But there are a lot of people that just don't follow murder cases like like we do. So (laughs) they will. There will be people that don't read the paper or don't watch these kind of things, don't watch true crime. And, you know, they'll they'll be able to find uh, jurors that uh, have something close to a, an open mind on, on this. Yeah. Most people keep their uh, their their eyes and ears away from this sort of stuff and uh, might not be the worst idea. Rachel White says, so excited to catch us live watching from Paris, France. Vinny is adorable. Even the ones in Paris. Uh, Joel said the name. Uh, I don't know what that is. Um, Vinny Politan, you've had her on the show. I've had her on my show. I've gotten to, you know, know her pretty well. Ruth Markell, um, any thoughts uh, her way on this day? Um, Has she inspired you at all? You know, she has the book, her book, The Unveiling Out. She's come on. She's a uh, a pillar of strength. What, what do you think about her? Oh, absolutely. The other thing that's amazing about her, is the her approach to all of this the, you know and everyone's presumed innocent and and she believes in the system that her you know her son had spent his life studying and, and understanding and dicing and analyzing and to me that's the other part of this she she wants a fair process you know we, we get a lot of uh victims that that i speak to through court tv and they come from all you know they they get thrust in the middle of all this. Some don't want to speak out at all. Others want to speak. Some want vengeance. Um, but the amazing thing about her is that she wants justice, which which from her, I believe, is just she wants the truth. She wants the truth to come out, the truth to be exposed and to run it through our system with all, all the rules and regulations that we have. And to me, that's amazing, uh, amazing strength. And most victims don't have to go through this again and again and again. Third trial, third trial, that is tough. And that doesn't include any appeals and everything else that'll happen down the road. Um, but but pretty, not pretty, I mean, extremely impressive. And uh, our, our thoughts will be with her throughout all of this. Uh, well said, and she is on her way as we speak to Tallahassee. We're going to be up there, uh, STS will, uh, next Monday, a week from today, and we're going to have her on the show. I'm sure Vinny and crew will have uh, her on the show as well. Lindsay Shea says, if you don't recognize Jeremy, you are not an OG listener. Mutz has been on the show uh, plenty of times. Uh, Vinny, um, 
Charlie Adelson, we talked about his possible defense. Do you have any doubt that um, talked about on your show, you know, some of his arrogance, his narcissism, any doubt that he gets up on the uh, stand? You know, we've been seeing at Court TV many more defendants getting on the stand. And we've also been seeing many more not guilties. Like Court TV was relaunched in 2019. And in this second iteration of Court TV and trial coverage, I, I can't believe how many times I hear those two words next to one another, not guilty, and the number of defendants who have, who have taken the stand. And some of them very successfully, um, not all of them, obviously, but a greater number of them are taking the stand. So I think there's a real chance that he does. And I think I don't think it's going to be a decision that's made already. Uh, I know they defense always says we don't make the decision to the last minute. Um, I think a lot of times the defendant has made up his or her mind ahead of time. I think in this case, it's going to be based upon how this evidence goes in. And, and what comes out through the recordings and the prosecution's case, how much does he have to explain? And I think that'll probably guide all of it. And does McVanilla testify? What does she say? Like that, to me, that's the other wild card. She's testified twice already and said she had nothing to do with this, like nothing to do with this. Yeah. Is she going to come and testify for the state and now say, I was the a deal maker in the middle of all of this? And if so, why should we believe her? But um, what will Charlie have to address concerning her potential testimony? So I think of, of many of the cases I've covered this one, I will actually believe the defense when they say it's a game time decision. Uh, interesting. Uh, Carl, do you agree with that? You think it'll be a game time decision with uh, Charlie getting on the stand? And, you know, once, uh, Vinny drops off the bottom of the hour. We'll circle back and go in a little more depth. Well, what do you think uh, just off the top? Uh, well, I think the uh, the strategy should always be prepare to testify and then decide if the government's case has fallen apart and your client doesn't need to take the stand. Don't, don't stick with your original decision. Always keep an open mind. So I think in Charlie's mind, though, I think he's going to want to take the stand and he may be like Murdo and just override any uh, – common sense from his lawyer team and go ahead and take the stand and then do himself in. But whether he takes a stand or not, I think it's really immaterial to whether he gets convicted. So I don't think that's going to be one of the cases where, uh, where we have not guilty by the jury. Uh, Vinny, this is an interesting question from Susan Lynn. I want to know what was the first case Vinny covered for court TV ever, the original ever. court TV. Well, there'll be two that I mentioned. The first I covered, it was, um, we didn't have cameras in the courtroom. It was, Sean Puffy Combs, and he had a, a gun charge in New York City, but New York City did not permit cameras. So my job was to hang out at the courthouse and wait for his girlfriend, J-Lo, uh, to see if she was going to show up and testify. Um, uh, she never did show up. So that was the first one that I covered that I was on the air. Then the, the first trial that I really covered, covered, where I was there on the ground in the courtroom, et cetera, um, was Dr. Dirk Greiniter, who also was a Harvard-educated man. Uh, he was an anesthesiologist and was accused of murdering his wife in the woods. And it was in Dedham, Massachusetts, which was a historical courtroom. It's where um, two uh, Italian immigrant, immigrants named Sacco and Vanzetti were charged and tried uh, years ago. 
And uh, he ended up with the same result as Sacco and Vanzetti. He was uh, convicted as well. But that was the first big one, Dr. Dirk Reiniger, uh, who bludgeoned his wife to death in the woods. Never a good thing to do. And Vinny, how did you pivot from the law into TV? Obviously, the blue eyes had a lot to do with it. But but what was the uh, what was the deciding factor? What what made the switch? For I, you? I was really coming back to my first love uh, as an undergrad. I studied uh, communication. Um, I was I worked at the radio station uh, at the time. Stanford didn't have a TV station because Palo Alto didn't have cable television, so I couldn't do television. So I did radio. Um, and then I've always had a camera and a microphone in my hands throughout my life. So it was really coming back to my first love. And I remember the day when I made the decision, I was watching the news. It was eyewitness news and I, not eyewitness news, world news tonight on ABC. And I heard this voice that I recognized and I was like, is that Juju? Is that Juju? I run into the living room cause I was in the other room. I run in and there's Juju Chan who was my friend uh, in college, fellow communication major. We both worked at the radio station. And this is like 10 years after college. And she was on World News Tonight. She's had a fantastic career. But it wasn't, the moment wasn't like, oh, she could do it, I could do it. It was no, like, like she did it. Like what we talked about in college, she did it. So I said in that moment, light bulb, I'm doing it. And I had the support of my family, my wife, and everyone else to uh, drop the job as a lawyer, making really good money, and take a job for $10 an hour so I could be on TV and get paid for it. What was the first gig? Where was the first gig? It was a Time Warner Cable Channel 10 News. Your town, your story. We covered 14 towns in eastern Bergen County, New Jersey. My beat was Palisades Park uh, and Moonaki. And Little Ferry. Got to be from Jersey to know those names, which I do. Jersey proud. Vinny, it is always uh, an honor to have you on the show. Not only that, it helps our numbers, and uh, everyone loves looking at the eyes. Please come back. Please. Uh, I will. It was great to be on with, with, with everyone today. And uh, say hi to your mother for me. Would you? I will. We built this mural here. I had a Miami street artist painted. That's my mom wagging her finger at me, yelling at me memorialized. Vinny, thank you, man. You're a gentleman and a scholar. My mom loves you. I'll have you back soon. All right. Take care, fellas. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. The great Vinny Politan right there. Now we can really dive deep and I can uh, be equitable in my uh, icing and slicing of this case. So just back to this jury selection for a moment, because I was um, really taken aback by this 900 person jury pool. Um, you heard Jeremy Mutt say, Carl, that it is um, very unusual. Uh, you heard Vinnie Politan say for high-profile cases, not so much. Um, is that a daunting number to you? I mean, do you think they're going to be able to kind of get through um, close to 1,000 jurors, uh, as Jeremy said, in just the next couple of days? And if so, how? Well, I think that's just being overly cautious. I think the worst thing uh, the government could do is not have enough jurors there in case they calculated it wrong and everybody knows about the case and has already formulated opinion. So I think with the uh, them being uh, having that precaution and just uh, want to be proactive that way, I, I think that's that's uh, reasonable and they're, they'll be going home within a short few days. They probably just show up and they say, come back. We don't need you. Just check in each day either by call, they probably don't even have to show up. So it's just more of that uh, safety measure. So I think they could even probably seat a jury with the first 50 
Um, if not, I'm, I'm really convinced they'll seed it with the first uh, 75 or 100. I don't know how many incrementally they bring in each time. But um, in any event, I, I do think that there's a great chance we'll probably be done within uh, by, by the end of tomorrow. Uh, David Gagamella in his best uh, Sopranos voice. You from Jersey? I'm from Jersey. Love it. Uh, Jeremy Mutz, man who is from the Tallahassee area. Um, same question I asked. Vinny, and we'll again, we'll we'll kind of hash all of this out a little bit more. Um, do you think, in your uh, mind's eye, that Charlie thought he'd ever be cornered like this in the courtroom? Do you think he anticipated this? No. At first, I think they thought they had a good plan; they would get away with it. I think what played out and what sort of drove some of the interest in this case, besides being a whodunit, besides being a murder for hire with the divorce and all those things that would make people interested in the case was the fact that the prosecution was delayed for so long and even um, blocked in some ways by the actions of the then state attorney. And I think Charlie probably thought that he was in a good spot. I think even after uh, Katie, even after Mr. Garcia, Mr. Rivera were arrested, I think for a while he probably thought, they could beat this. They could hide behind the shield of their attorneys and and not see a courtroom. Um, fate sometimes has a way of throwing a wrench into these plans because no matter how smart people um, think they are and how perfect the plan is, fate can turn. You you have a new state attorney. You have prosecutor like Georgia Kappelman and the FBI that continued to work on this case. And I've said before that the case that we're going to trial with on Katie Magbanua's second trial, this trial, it's a much different case than what we read about in the newspaper or saw in 2015 and 2016. So I think for quite some time, he, he thought he was going to get by with this. You know, he's somebody that could put $2 million on the table as a potential bribe to Dan Markell to allow the children to relocate. So he's not a person that is going to give up. He's the type of person that thinks his his wealth and his his connections are going to get him out of this. And uh, I think that didn't change until probably Katie's second trial, you know, when it first really started to unravel for him and his mother, I would imagine. Uh, Roxanne H., all before you, there was Vinny P., of course there was. He's uh, fairly and is good at what he does, some fairly smart i guess i don't know he's very smart he's not as funny as you i like that uh carl how about you um he's a bit of a a caged um suspect right now do you think he thought uh by the way asian american legal focus i see out there uh, i believe she's going to be coming on our show tomorrow night john singer had to uh switch around so he'll be on tomorrow night 7 p.m eastern and we've got a jury consultant coming on so i will tweet those uh details at podcast sts but um carl back to you do you think charlie thought um with all his hubris that he would ever find himself in this situation finally a trial underway october 23rd 2023 no, I think he thought that they could outslick and outsmart the uh, Tallahassee legal community, and they pretty much did for a while. But the problem with that theory is they thought they could circle the wagons and nobody's going to speak about the conspiracy. But the problem is they went outside their family as well. And they also had the forensic evidence against folks outside of their family. 
So that's how the plan started to unravel. It just took a lot longer than I think it should have, but eventually it did unravel. They finally did make some arrests of the Hitman team. And so what they didn't have was the control over the Latin King gang member, um, Luis Rivera. And so he, which a lot of folks would have thought he's the last to flip of the non Adelsons, but he actually was the first one to flip. And he, uh, he was given a, a reasonable sentence as a result, and he was willing to cooperate. So um, it's just really, it makes the case so bizarre, though, the fact that like Sigfredo hasn't rolled over yet. Granted, he's in the um, jail. They're ready to be used if he decides to, uh, to finally uh, come clean like Katie has. But um, I, I think that they were probably um, hearing a lot of the maestro comments bragging about how smart he is and, and they're never going to get caught um, up until the time that uh, they are, they arrested the hitmen. So in that point, um, I, I think that, uh, well, they also got scared before, because keep in mind the bump happened before the, uh, the other t uh, hitmen were arrested and Katie eventually as well. So I, I think this thing was really in a panic mode. I think they probably um, were waiting to see what would happen. They were probably thinking they're going to be arrested years earlier and that never happened. So I, I think still they probably always have to, uh, like Charlie was doing, have a, a gun by your bed in case uh, in case you're going to get uh, somebody uh, to show up unannounced and it might be law enforcement. So I think that um, they're, they're running scared. They're trying to hide behind uh, the law and their attorneys. And it's just not going to work out if uh, the prosecution does the right thing. Uh, Rue Garland, Carl Steinbeck on the panel doesn't get any better. I would have to agree with you. Uh, Wendy Harper, love you all, but I miss Carm. Carm is going to be a regular now every Wednesday. This Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern time, we're looking at the Love Triangle trial coming out of Austin, Texas. That, of course, Caitlin Armstrong is accused of murdering Mo Mariah Wilson in cold blood. Uh, the two were seeing a gentleman named Colin Strickland. We're going to have the very latest on that. 5 p.m. Eastern time. By the way, real quick, one of the things we are doing now is teaming up with some uh, sponsors here, and one of them is Liquid IV. I take this, and I honestly do take it. I wouldn't tell you I did if I didn't, and uh, use it when I get back from the gym or go to the gym. It's an electrolyte powder. Uh, if you put in STS when you order Liquid IV, uh, helps them, helps the show a little bit. So uh, keep that in mind. Um, Jeremy Mutz. Tallahassee. Uh, there have been some high-profile cases, obviously, in recent years. Um, how does it affect the way the lawyers do their work, um, both the state and the defense, knowing that the eyes of the world are going to be on this case? Well, you know, as a prosecutor, you feel the pressure, even if it's just an empty courtroom, you know, and uh, even if it's just one reporter in there covering it, that's a little bit of pressure, but this is just internationally uh, followed case. So that there is pressure there. Um, this is probably the biggest case a prosecutor would have in their career, this type of case. And I think it, it's certainly true for Ms. Kappelman, the fact that she's been through this case from the beginning. So there's pressure there. There's pressure for the defense. I mean, if you think about a case like this, why would a defense attorney take this sort of case? Um, Jose Baez sort of made his career off the KC Anthony case. Um, so all the publicity, all of the attention of the world is upon you. There's certainly that pressure. There's also that pressure of defending a client and what happens to him. There's that pressure on the state side. If they lose this case, um, there's nothing worse really than having to go talk to the, 
the victim's family and sit side by side, a mother who's who's crying about it, the loss. There's never going to be justice. There's nothing worse than having a mistrial and having to go tell that family we have to do this again. So the stakes are enormous. It can't it can't be overstated enough. Um, but I think a lot of that kind of fades away once you you get into the courtroom, once you start putting on your case as a prosecutor, I think you kind of get into the, to where that sort of fades to the background, the, the cameras and stuff. And you, you're not going to be performing for the cameras as a prosecutor. Certainly Miss, Miss Kappelman is not, she's very, you know, even keeled, very uh, focused. And, and I don't think that'll distract her uh, one bit. Yeah. She's a real pro. I cannot see her, you know, maybe there, there might be some, uh, you know, first inning jitters or first half inning jitters. But I think that, uh, like you said, will clear away. Uh, Mesrick Ayel here says, did you notice his defense team is increasing by numbers? Carl Steinbeck, what does it mean? There's one name I'll tell you about in a moment uh, that I was actually struck by, and I'll tell you why. But, Carl, what do you think of uh, the ever-increasing defense team? Well, I think that's actually a, a good thing. If I was a prosecutor, I would think that's a good thing for uh, for their side because the more outside lawyers and team members you bring in and uh, the jurors see that and they can read that they're really worried. And I've even seen jurors, not in my cases I've tried, but I know from uh, other cases that I've talked to jurors on, it's like, if you bring out-of-town lawyers, you got something to hide. And so they don't trust them. And so now, not only do you have Roshbaum now being an out-of-towner, but he's bringing all these other folks. And so he's got a little small army of busy bees trying to uh, psychoanalyze the jury. And it's just really an odd thing. I, I think in a civil case where you're in federal court many times and you have folks from that region of the state sitting in as jurors and you're talking about millions of dollars involving businesses. I, I think any number of lawyers coming from the corporate headquarters or trial attorneys coming from big cities into that small area. I, I don't think that's such a big problem, but I, I think when you have those type of lawyers swooping in and being in that little small Leon County courtroom and they don't fit in. And so that I think is going to actually not bode well for the defense. So I would not worry about it. And I think that when you have a case where you don't really have anything to work with, as in Charlie's case, I, I don't see it making any difference except it's probably putting them back, the Adelson's back, probably 500K to a million. I'm not sure what these people charge, but it's, they study the case actually and go through it with a fine tooth comb, these, this whole team of folks. So they've probably been working this up for months and, and to just think of all the legal bills they're racking up. So as a prosecutor, I always like to see it if my uh, defendant is spending money trying to, uh, trying to figure out a way to get out of uh, the conviction. But in the end, it's all, all going to be wasted money, as it was my mindset. So I think that, uh, I think in the end that, uh, you know, I think probably most of the jurors that they're probably most worried about is probably college-age students, and those are in class right now. And uh, so the, the uh, judges probably excuse those types already. So you're going to be left with uh, more of the, uh, the um, average permanent resident there for Tallahassee, and, and they're not going to see through these uh, – uh, or they're not going to buy into these defense uh, theories of, uh, you know, outrageous uh, theories that defy common sense. Mm. Uh, for that kind of uh, billable hour, Harvey and uh, Don and Wendy could have gotten themselves maybe three and a half Ferraris for what they're spending. Uh, these photos here are pictures that actually Ruth Markell gave us to use. You see Dan Markell, you see him at his son's bris on the bottom right corner. 
at his one of his Harvard graduations in the middle at the beach in Tel Aviv of all places, uh, top right in there with his mother, uh, Ruth, of course, in the middle. Uh, JP here telling us something we know. JPJ, Carl is awesome. Yes, he is. Uh, Jeremy Mutz, one of the things that actually struck me reading this today, because I did not know this and I don't think anyone did, uh, there's a guy named Josh Dubin. He's president of the New York-based company called Dubin Research and Consulting. Uh, he basically specializes in jury selection and trial strategy, but he's a very big name uh, in the world of exoneration. Um, he's worked with the Innocence Project and gotten a lot of big, uh, high-profile cases. He's got um, people who are serving time in prison, out of prison. Um, he It just kind of goes to show here that you know money can buy sort of high-powered, successful uh, legal advice. And uh, he's getting, you know, among the best of the best here. How could this help Charlie to have someone this notable in terms of helping pick the jurors? Well, there's a lot of psychology that goes both ways on this. And, you know, sometimes the prosecutor may look over across the table and see a bunch of attorneys there and make uh, formulate something about the defense, their mindset. But sometimes as a prosecutor, you don't want a lot of people at your table either because the jurors can look at that and see, well, you're ganging up on this defendant. Um, analyzing the jurors, their mindset, I think is very important. And in some ways it's a pseudoscience, um, but it's, it's more of an art than a real science, but you're watching their body language. You're trying to look at not only how they answer things, but maybe the, the hidden meanings behind what they say. I think the fact that you bring in somebody that's involved with sort of uh, conviction integrity, you may be focusing on things at trial arguments, such as how the investigation sort of got tunnel vision, zeroed in, lasered in on one set of people, on Charlie, um, false positives and that kind of thing in an investigation. And that may be something they're going to try to plant those seeds beginning in jury selection of, you know, once the state zeroed in, this was a murder for hire. Um, dealing with child custody. Charlie is kind of the the bad boy, you know, playboy, flamboyant in terms of his sports cars and his persona. They zeroed in on him and they didn't look at anybody else. We all know that that's really not what happened. But if you're trying to build a defense, that may be where you start weaving that thread with your jury consultant. The questions you ask, the things you try to bring out in the trial may be, you know, little hints of that's where they're going with this case. Uh, and Jeremy, I want to come right back to you. Um, so obviously the most important thing when we're dealing with this is the victims, and that would be Dan Markell and, of course, his children. Um, what do you think is going through Ruth Markell's mind? You know, I know she's nervous. I know that firsthand because I've talked to her. Um, again, yet another trial. Uh, what's it like for the families, especially, you think, for Ruth uh, ahead of this really uh, the showdown really beginning in earnest? It's extremely difficult. The grief process, you know, I worked with victims of, of homicides and their families and other violent crimes. You know, grief is, is like waves on the beach. You know, you just keep getting hit with them and it's the waves may be higher, may be more forceful. But this pain is just an ongoing thing for the family. And I think what a what a tremendous advocate for victims Miss Markell is with her book, her you know, excellent presentations that she's made and her 
um, efforts to bring awareness to what victims go through. We, you know, we have a we have a criminal justice system. We don't necessarily have a victim justice system, and it's just something that's indescribable what she's gone through. And you know, she she won't get to see her son be there for his kids' graduation. She won't get to be there when you know there's significant events. Every significant event is painful for her that, you know, we, we take for granted, we get to be there for our, our children's birthdays and things like that. So what she's going through is indescribable, but what a, what an example of, of strength and uh, graciousness that, that she is. Uh, well put here. Um, let's get into the meat and potatoes here. And that uh, begins with uh, Charlie's possible defense from Yala. Uh, Carl, to you, uh, what's the panel's prediction on a possible defense for Charlie? Uh, what's the opening statement from the defense going to be followed by this comment? We can break them all down. I wonder if a rash bomb will defer the defense opening until after the state rests. Um Carl, where, where do you think the defense needs to go here? Um, Vinny said, you know, maybe they'll put it on another family member. Um, I think it's too obvious that they were involved for them to say that no one from the Adelson family was involved. But, um, Carl, you're the attorney, not me. Um, if you're Daniel Rashbaum, where do you begin here? Well, I don't really want to give them uh, any pointers, mm. but I suffice it to say, I think that there's not a lot you got to work with. So I think the pressure on the defense counsel is not as great. I think the greatest pressure on defense counsel when you know your client's innocent. And uh, I always said about the justice system that basically all it takes is um, a bad judge, a bad defense attorney, a bad prosecutor, bad law enforcement, uh, police officer types or, or detectives. And you could find your, yourself uh, as an innocent person convicted. So um, you got to have all those things working in, in unison to really make sure you get a, a fair trial, a just trial. Um, not to mention jurors. You can have jurors acting bad as well. Um, and then in the Murdo case, for example, I guess I got to add to it because they had a, a clerk of court that was tampering with the jury. So you can have a lot. You have a lot of moving parts. And so you got to make sure that uh, everyone's doing their job. And if they all do their job, then then you don't have to worry about that as much. So um, and obviously, um, you know, Charlie's coming in there under the law. He's innocent until proven guilty. And the state has to pro prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. You want the jurors going home knowing they did the right thing. You don't want them coming back to the courtroom the next day and saying, wait a minute, I, I thought of something else. I, I think he's innocent, or at least I shouldn't have voted to convict, that kind of thing. So um, I think that they're probably going to point the finger, like uh, like we are saying earlier with Vinny, that uh, somebody else did it, it wasn't me. But I, I think anytime you're, you're pointing the finger at a family member, I think that's going to be especially uh, treacherous and you're on a slippery slope. And um, so I, I don't I don't know if they'll me mention Wendy at all, but uh, or else they don't have to come up with another theory. But it's always a stronger defense if you do come up with another whodunit scenario. So um, in this particular case, there's, um, you know, Charlie's got his footprints all over this thing and his fingerprints and his DNA. So I just don't see any credible way that he's going to be able to uh, finagle and trick and bamboozle a jury and, and to vote not guilty. And I will say this, that if he do, does find one like they had in the Katie one trial, they're just going to retry it. And then, and then Charlie can spend another, uh, you know, million and a half to $2 million on another case. So if I was a prosecutor that would, that would not, uh, that would take help take pressure off me trying the case. Like, you know what, we're going to keep getting this and we're going to get better and better at doing it. But I think that they realize that they really should uh, try this one 
and uh, be successful the first time around. And, and Georgia's also done so many murder cases. Nothing really rattles her. So I think that she's going to go forward and um, because she knows the facts so well. And also Sarah uh, Dugan knows the facts so well. I, th I think they're going to be a strong, dynamic duo. And uh, they're going to come out on top. And I think the whole trial will go a lot quicker than anyone anticipated. Because if you keep in mind, there really isn't any uh, defense witnesses that are, that are going to be a smoking gun to counteract the uh, prosecution's witnesses. So I think it's just going to be like a little poking here and there that uh, Roshbaum is going to do and, and uh, not really go after anybody, um, ripping them to shreds on the witness stand and, and whatnot. So um, and if they do, I think they're just if they if he does do that, which I think is against his personality from what I've seen so far, I think it's it's not really going to work anyway. And the jury will have sympathy towards whoever he's trying to uh, beat up that way. So in the end, I think it's going to work the way it should. And uh George Kaplman and Sarah Dugan do know this as well as anybody, and they're both cool cucumbers, especially under pressure. So uh, T. Lemon says, I've decided the next dog I'm going to get is going to be named Vinny. Good thing Vinny's not here for that. Um, same question to you, Jeremy. Um, you know, Vinny said this uh, very in a very animated way. I mean, there is absolutely no connection that Luis Rivera or Sigfredo Garcia have to Dan Markell other than the Adelson. So um, you're a savvy uh, litigator. What what kind of, I mean, what kind of theory can you come up with, with as, a, as a defense attorney to create that reasonable doubt? I mean, they've got to be involved somehow, don't they? I'd say rush to judgment. I would do the whole theme of my defense, rush to judgment, the law enforcement jump to conclusions. I would try to attack all the things that they didn't look at in the investigation I look at some other things with Garcia and Rivera, whether they, through their awareness of the Adelsons, could have looked at that as a as a wealthy opportunity to try to blackmail them, um, to try to do something um, in Tallahassee to go after the Adelsons and get money. Um, poke holes, they didn't collect the um, tax returns and other financial documents involving Katie you know, until well into this. Um, do I personally buy that? Do I personally, would I be swayed by that? No, but we're talking about what could they do? And you can get a lot of mileage just attacking the, the state's case. And you don't have to be nasty about it. I don't think the attorneys representing Charlie are necessarily uh, that type of personality, but you can just consistently and, and detective so-and-so, you didn't do this. You didn't do this. You didn't do this. You didn't consider this. Um, you didn't consider whether there are other enemies that Dan Markell could have had. It was all just focused on Wendy. As soon as you found out that the divorce was going on, it was all focused on on this. And you don't really have to attack the state witnesses like Mr. Jeffrey Lacasse. You could just say, you know what? You know, he, he did have those concerns. And as soon as law enforcement heard that, they ran with that to the exclusion of everything else. They only have to create one reasonable doubt. And, uh, you know, and then they've prevailed. I don't think they will. I think uh, I agree with that the case is very strong against him, but that's something that they could do. And, you know, they're getting paid a lot of money to do something and they're, they're going to do it. And I think they're going to do it very skillfully. And I don't think any case like this is a slam dunk. Um, Vinny mentioned the trend of people testifying the Tara Grinstead case last year. If you remember that, I think it was R Ryan Dukes was on trial he testified for himself. I thought it was completely um, absurd, the things that he said and his demeanor 
But uh, that coupled with what the defense was able to do in attacking the state's investigation, he was acquitted. And so I think that's always something the state really has to look out for and make sure that they don't uh, get hit by those kind of things. Yeah. By the way, everyone says that uh, Daniel Rashbaum is a very skillful defense attorney and actually a really good guy, uh, but he's got a job to do, uh, no doubt, and a big job ahead of him. Uh, Yala says, uh, Carl, I'd love for you to uh, poke holes in Yala Rashbaum's um, theory here. My prediction is Charlie will say that Katie McBanawa was blackmailing him. He told her about Wendy's problems with Dan and she did the hit to curry favor with Charlie and get him to be with her. Very interesting. Uh, does would this ever fly? Um, well, you can you can say that as a theory, but like I say, the jury's going to look at the common sense way of they interpret human interaction and behavior, and that does not make any sense that Charlie would act like he does in the Dolce Vita tape. And the way he had those wiretap conversations with mom, that's what's going to do him in. So also think about the money, the car. You're going to hear probably about how uh, this family was like so circled around each other. Everything was a family decision. And so that just makes it look like this was all done. Charlie had to be the one to be, be able to come up with the money. Um, I think Katie's going to testify. There's a good chance. I understand that she was interviewed 12 hours last week in the courthouse. And uh, so I think that she's going to have her testimony locked solid if uh, if she do, it does get called. And I think she probably will. Because one of the things as a prosecutor, um, I think the mindset to have is you, you're not afraid to, to discuss and present the ugly sides of you, some of your witnesses that you're calling. And so the ugly side of her, of course, is all the, the many statements that she denied being involved in this and she was pointing the finger at Charlie. So I, I think that uh, a lot of times jurors, they want to see a complete picture. The defense has to not complete any complete picture. They can just poke holes and create doubts and confusion and, 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 uh, and uh, that kind of thing. So as a prosecutor though, you got to cover all the gaps and address all the gaps. So I, I would think that if you don't call her, even though she's what uh, presentable as, as a uh, truthful person this time around and fully admits uh, to her uh, extensive lies the last time. I, I think that al that also can take um, away the defense theory that the uh, prosecution won't even call her because they know that she set up Charlie. So I think that's going to be their main theme of attack is if if they don't call Katie and she's otherwise, you know, re redeemable and credible now. And they just get those lies that she told out in the front and they bring up the motive and reasons why. I think she still comes across as sort of a... Um, person that doesn't even care about her kids and is worried about a glamour life and money than, than getting out of jail early to, to uh, plead at that time. But if she fully confesses now, explains why, it won't make any sense to the reasonable person. Why would you do that to your kids? But I think uh, you take it for what it is. And Charlie was uh, enticing her. They were paying her. They gave her a car. And if you mentioned that one of the wiretaps, uh, um, or excuse me, the Dolce Vita tape. Remember, Charlie was mentioning something about, you know, we didn't, you don't have a, a, a Benz or a, uh, or a fancy car. I forget the name, the exact type of car you mentioned, but um, a Rolls Royce or something like that. So in any event, they, they just shows a consciousness that they were not trying to bankroll or too much to draw suspicion uh, from law enforcement. So this was going to be like a long-term lifetime payback for her. And so maybe that's, I think it was probably going to be the reason why she says that she was willing to stick it out 
because she had uh, out, outside of uh, when she walked out of the courtroom and, and was acquitted or they just gave up on hung juries that, that she was going to live the easy life. Uh, Black Widow from the Republic of Ireland. Happy birthday to Chelsea Whitaker giving us a super sticker. Best guest, better community. Uh, KCL from Salt Lake City. Um, this is an interesting comment. I'll save this comment for when I'm done uh, with this little bit here. But Jeremy Mutz, um, as I said er earlier, the Dolce Vita and the so-called Mitsuri tapes are really the closest things to smoking guns that the state has. Um, by the way, Tim Jansen, there's a, a, an article in the Tallahassee Democrat, which has excellent coverage. His quote today, I think 100 percent he testifies, meaning Charlie Adelson. That is uh, Tim Jansen's quote. He says the government's strongest thing is going to be the Dolce Vita tape. They, the defense lawyers, have to neutralize it or try to turn it to their advantage. That is uh, a quote from Tim Jansen. Now, obviously, during this 2016 conversation, uh, the Dolce Vita tapes between Charlie and Katie McBonawa, they suggested paying or possibly killing an FBI agent posing as a blackmailer. And Charlie warned he would go, quote unquote, Nazi on anyone who messed with his family he also said that, and I quote here, if they had any evidence, if they had any evidence, we would have already gone to the uh, airport. That sounds like a guilty man speaking, Jeremy. But KCL here says Rashbaum has already said that they believe the Dolce Vita recording vindicates Charlie. How do you think they make that argument? Well, you have to say things like that. I think on a, in a DUI case, the defense attorney is going to say, that, oh, the video vindicates my client. And, you know, they put a positive spin on it. They're going to try to attack the interpretation of it. The The recording is not entirely crystal clear, um, but I think it's very powerful. I think, you know, innocent people don't talk about whacking a hitman. You know, if if, an innocent, if I'm innocent and somebody approaches me on the street and says, oh, we're here about that thing up north, I'm going to go home and say, you know, I, I was scared out of my mind. Some guy came up to me. I'm going to call law enforcement. Um, I think it's very powerful. I don't know that it is the strongest part of the case, because to me, the overwhelming part of the case is the amount of contact among the players, the web of people and the connectivity of phone calls and such surrounding the murder. If you if you look at that on a flow chart, if you look at all those calls and the sequence, to me, that is as good as a DNA, as good as a fingerprint. Uh, but. To actually get their state of mind from Dolce Vita and the Matsuri recordings, that just puts the icing on, on the cake, um, as it were. And I think that that's going to, you know, probably see Mr. Adelson spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, I think that circumstantial evidence to me is just ir almost irrefutable. Uh, Michelle Pretorius is watching us in South Africa, Jeremy, and just had a baby girl. Congrats to you. Uh, to the best guess, I'll throw this right back to you, Vinny. Uh, think that jurors who have heard of the case can leave their preconceived ideas outside of the court and only rely on evidence heard in court when deliberating. Is that possible for jurors to do? And would they be selected? Are you talking to me? Uh, uh, Jeremy, that Jeremy, that's for you. Well, it's very difficult. I mean, that's the idea. That's the ideal. You know, and sometimes you'll you'll have a situation where the judge orders the jurors you are to disregard what you just heard. As humans, we can't really do that. But the idea is to get somebody who's as close to a, a clean slate, a blank slate as possible. Um, and somebody who hasn't come into this with fixed opinions that 
you know, Charlie's guilty. You know, I probably couldn't be a, a, a juror on this particular case. You, you need somebody that is going to try to follow that as, as closely as possible. And, and I do think the jury selection process is good at, at getting to that. I think by and large, the questions the court asks, people that are called to be a juror are going to be honest. The attorneys are going to ask them questions that are going to probe some of these things. Well, how much true crime do you watch? How much true crime do you read? And so forth. And I think most people are honest and, and it works. Are there people that are kind of stalking horses that get that get past that? Yes. And there are people that get on a jury that are not going to convict no matter what. And then there are people that are going to, you know, lean the opposite way. But I think by and large, it, it really does work. Um, but that's kind of a really idealized notion that we can just sort of, you know, clean our minds before we get, we sit there in the panel. I would always tell people, you know, we don't expect people to to check their common sense at the door of the courthouse. We don't expect people to check their life experiences at the door of the courthouse. But the question is, can you give this defendant a fair trial? And that's kind of what I would do in, in jury selection. Uh, super sticker here from Howie Will. I can't believe I caught my first live here and Vinny P's in the house. Uh, I should be asleep as I work nights, but there's no way I can fall asleep now. Smash that like button. Thanks for all you do. Thank you. And you look like you're in a, a military uniform. So uh, thank you for your service. If that is in fact uh, the case, Mother Bear coming to us uh, from England, Carl Steinbeck, uh, just back to Dolce Vita and uh, Maturi, obviously, uh, the Dolce Vita tapes uh, were enhanced. We found out the enhancements will be um, allowed in. Uh, transcripts will not be allowed in. In your opinion, is that the linchpin in this case? I mean, is that what ultimately will get him convicted no matter what Daniel Rashbaum and the defense says about that vindicating him? Is that going to be the poison pill for him? Well, I think as a standalone piece of evidence, it wouldn't be enough to convict, right? It's not going to be like a videotape of him um, telling someone to go up there and kill Dan Markell. So it's not that kind of thing. But I, I think it removes any doubt whatsoever of his innocence and anything he tries to point back at. Uh, this was other people that did it or they try to frame me afterwards. This, this is mannerisms and, and his behavior and what he said is going to do him in. But also keep in mind, there's other modus operandi type evidence, signature evidence against him. For example, the stapling uh, of his money. He routinely stapled $100 bills, kept thousands of them. And so how did uh, Luis Rivera get stapled dollars? You know, so there's, there's just too many uh, little details like that, that, uh, that are inexplainable, inexcusable. And what uh, you have nothing to work with as a defense. So you're just going to like, say, be poking holes, say, say things that uh, in, in the really end of all things don't matter at all. You're just trying to create doubt, confusion and uh, and smoke bombs to try to confuse the jury. So you really have no good theory that's going to carry any water. Look at STS getting wild with their uh, defense theories. Wendy blackmailed Charlie to organize the hit by threatening to tell Harvey about their incestuous romps. Uh, now we're getting a little wild here, but uh, hey, people, uh, defense theories uh, run the gamut. Um, here we go. Uh, Davini and Jeremy, no more Vinny. He had to take off to prep for his own show. I uh, think Charlie will be found guilty. We know Carl's answer already. Uh, what do you think, Jeremy? I'm putting the, uh, the card ahead of the horse a little bit, but uh, macro picture when this is all said and done in two or three weeks, uh, will 
Charlie Adelson's new home be a state prison in Florida somewhere? Well, I'm certainly rooting for the prosecution in this one and, and for the sake of the Markell family. I think the evidence is very strong, and I, and I do think that will be the result. But uh, you never know what a jury will do. And, uh, you know, it really isn't over until those jurors come back in the courtroom. Um, Carl, to you, uh, now kind of switching gears to Wendy here. Uh, I look back at George's opening statement um, during her last trial, and she said, and I quote here, Dan Markell's son's last name was changed from Markell to Adelson. And just like that, their father was effectively erased from their, erased from their lives. And the Adelson family's big problem had been resolved. Um, I can only know that I've done nothing wrong was Wendy's response. Uh, do you expect Wendy to be called? And how hard does Georgia go after her this time? Well, I think that she will be called. I think that uh, based on the fact that we have the judge being so strong about willing to go out and have Don and Harvey arrested if they're not going to cooperate with the uh, state-issued subpoena, and the judge is willing to hold them in contempt at court to explain why they would not co cooperate, I think that uh, Wendy will, will feel the pressure to have to cooperate this time. I'm, I'll be surprised if she has John Loro on the case because John Loro is trying to defend uh, multiple criminal cases um, against uh, President Trump. And so I think that in the end that uh, they'll probably have some associate or a co-partner of the firm uh, representing her interests there uh, when she does testify. But um, the thing is, I, I think that uh, Georgia probably will get into more detail this go around. I, I, I think they got nothing to lose by going into more detail. And I would hope that they don't leave a lot of those loose ends of uh, her um, just asking one follow up question when there's an obvious lie by Wendy. So I, I, I do expect them to go a little bit more detail. And, and uh, so I think it's going to make for an exciting trial to see this come out. And the real dynamic, I, I think I've said this before on your show perhaps, but the, uh, the real dynamic is the jury is going to be having picking up so much on the body language between the, the dynamics between um, Wendy and also her brother and uh, the way Wendy is coming across and, and the way she denies and deflects uh, a lot of just routine type statements. I mean, if you if you go back to some of her testimony, she wouldn't even admit that Dan is the father of her children when asked a, a simple direct question. So you still see the hatred of Dan just seething out of her out of her body language, and I think that's going to really carry well. And I think it's going to hurt uh, Ch Charlie very well too. So and, and then that's going to come out of how um, they they were woven tightly and and all their decisions. They had joint accounts with their parents, or at least uh, Wendy did. So it was uh, it was a family hit job, and it's going to be abundantly clear. And Carl, I'm going to come right back to you on this, and this has to do with negotiating the high wire that is uh, the defense testimony. KCL here says, I hope Charlie does return blame towards Katie and Sigfredo Garcia, and that will open the door for Katie and Sigfredo to get on the stand to give rebuttal testimony and lock Charlie away forever. Does, if Charlie take this, if he does in fact take the stand, does he have to be careful about what he says because then others could be brought as witnesses and, you know, could be questioned in regard to whatever testimony he's giving? Yes, I think that, uh, that that's the that's also a strategy from the prosecution that you, you want to make sure you don't have 
um, your rebuttal witnesses saved for rebuttal and then because you're expecting the defense to present certain testimony and then defense doesn't present it and then if if you don't have that to rebut you can't call your witness so if they wait to call katie after rebuttal let's say charlie doesn't get on the stand and they don't directly implicate her through other witnesses so keep because keep in mind they can implicate katie in argument and through question of other witnesses per se but they maybe not point at her directly uh through witness testimony saying she did it so if it's this innuendo um, the judge may not let rebuttal evidence come in. So I, I would say the prosecution is most likely going to call her in their case in chief um, before defense presents their witnesses. And that way you make sure you get it out in the open. Because otherwise, it's, it can, like I say, it can be a risky uh, pr proposition if the prosecution is going to say, well, let's just really pounce on them on rebuttal and just blow them out of the water that way. Well, it may, may, you may not have that opportunity. So obviously, if Charlie testifies and uh, he points a finger at Katie as making this whole thing up, then obviously they could call Katie at that point. But uh, so there's a lot of, a lot of strategies, uh, tactics, and uh, decisions that are going to make that, that they're going to have to make on the fly, the defense will. And so in, in any event, I think that um, I think whatever they try, they're not, they're going to fail. And uh, Georgia and, and Sarah are definitely going to come out on the top. Hmm. Um, you know, perhaps one of the most befuddling uh, figures in this saga to me, uh, Jeremy Mutz, is Katie McBanawa. Um, You know, she basically had a chance to walk out of jail free. She had to get out of jail free card. She didn't take it. And then there was this whole commotion a few months back that she was going to give some sort of proffer. And, and there was a transport from Leon County. And uh, we didn't hear anything about it, really. Nothing really came of it. Um, and then we know there was another transport order for her to be here for this trial. And as far as we know, she's at the Leon County Jail. Uh, what do you think is going on with Katie McBanna? Why do you think we hear her uh, testimony in this case? And does she subsequently throw Charlie under the proverbial bus? Well, her proffer is still under seal, so there may be something there that the uh, parties have agreed to keep from the public, uh, as it would be prejudicial if it was in the media. So there may be something useful there that the state is going to use. Um, she kind of has nothing to lose in her mind. I think she was in a mindset that she thought that she could roll the dice and had a shot at winning. And perhaps there was some promise there to take care of her children and financial incentives and so forth. You know, maybe her attorneys oversold their ability to get an acquittal. That's, that's sometimes happens. So her mindset now though, is what can I do to lessen my sentence, I, I may, you know, do do almost anything to do that. So I think there's still a chance that she would testify and come through. And, you know, it's been said before about how you might rehabilitate her, her testimony, her credibility. People change their story all the time in court and uh, prosecutors and defense deal with that. And I think, you know, many reasons for her to lie throughout this can be explained that she, you know, uh, was looking out for her children. She was afraid. She was afraid of the Adelsons, that sort of thing. So she could still be an important witness in this. By the way, so, Jer Jeremy Mutz writes uh, true crime. Is it true crime or fiction, uh, Jeremy? It's fiction, you know, and, and the first book I wrote was totally fictional, and it was strange. What, what's the title of the first book? The first one is The Chance I'll Take, and I published that in 2014, you know, before uh, this murder occurred before my involvement in the Sims murder, 
And then I kind of saw life imitating art with a system that didn't want to, to prosecute these murders seemingly. And then I wrote a second book, partly inspired by what happened in the Markell case that I saw firsthand when I was with the state attorney's office. It again is a, is a fictional book. Don't call it murder, but there are little um, themes that I saw in the Markell case in the sense that, you know, why would you have, you know, clear evidence of a murder and it not be prosecuted. And, you know, in fact, you know, prosecutor trying to talk the victim's family out of going forward and that sort of thing. So uh, I found an outlet for me. My therapy was to write fiction. And that's that's kind of how I've dealt with some of this stuff. Mm. The Chance I'll Take and Don't Call It Murder, the two books by Jeremy Mutz. Are they both available on Amazon? They're both on Amazon, paperback and Kindle. And uh, I'm working on a third book now that's uh, more of a military uh, historical fiction. Um, but I love crime fiction the best, obviously. the uh, You know, I grew up reading those things. Never really thought I'd be part of the, you know, maybe a tiny part of the Markell case, but I just happened to be there when some of these decisions were being made early on. Wasn't something I really wanted to be involved with because I had my own caseload, but I saw things that really just kind of raised alarm bells with me. Like there's something really wrong here. You know, I had law enforcement people that, that trusted me and, reached out to me. They said, you know, why do you think some of these decisions are being made like this? Um, you know, so it's one of those things that, you know, fate put me there as kind of a witness to something. And I'm glad that the case has moved on. I think it's really commendable what Ms. Kappelman and Mr. Campbell have done and just let the case go as the evidence would, would uh, drive it instead of some other decisions being made that were being made back in 2014, 15, 16. Check out uh, Jeremy Mutz's books. Uh, we'll uh, give you the titles again before we leave. Tia Bawa says, I agree with Vinny. Uh, no 12 jurors on this planet are going to deliver a not guilty verdict to a story like this. Hung jury, yes, with one or two holdouts, but not guilty is an impossibility. Uh, Carl, do you agree with that? Right. Totally agree. You agree. Okay. And then um, Ultra Run Los Angeles, very L.A. here. There are TVs and restaurants and bars here in L.A. broadcasting the trial all the way through. If not in L.A., where would it be? Um, Katie Cool Lady, who's a very cool lady, and uh, she's going to be uh, at much of the trial. And I'm going to meet her when I go up there this Sunday to cover it. Uh, I figured out there are three jury consultants in there for Charlie. Um that just means that uh, the rest of the family is not going to be able to buy those uh, Ferraris that they wanted to uh, possibly get. Uh, here we go. I'm not even going to try to pronounce your name, Machiak, even though I just did. Hello from Ireland. Uh, is Jeffrey Lacoste going to testify? Um, I was going to go elsewhere, but Carl Steinbeck picked that up. Um, there's an issue of uh, impeachment in there, a legal term. What does that mean, and what can Jeffrey Lacoste say or not say? Well, I think they're going to do a lot of the same what he did last time, but they'll probably go into more details about some of the family dynamics as well. I think they also have the brother Rob to talk about the, the bizarre happenings that uh, took place in that family from the uh, window of time that uh, Jeff was there. And I think that um, he's also going to be able to uh, shed light on, on a lot of the behaviorisms, perhaps that he didn't cover last time. So a little, little bit more detail and I think Adelson centric on his testimony. And I think that uh, it's going to be very damning to uh, the defense because he also, keep in mind, 
um, to bring up something that Jeremy was mentioning earlier about this is a rush to judgment. If defense tries to say that this was a rush to judgment, all the prosecution has to do is bring out the fact that um, Jeff Lacoste mentioned uh, the Adelsons uh, being suspects and mentioned the uh, the um, the comment about uh, bought a TV instead of uh, hiring a hitman. And so he, he had to go back to law enforcement. Let's see. He, so initially went in when he came back from Tennessee um, that Sunday, I believe, that uh, Dan died the day before. So he's coming back Sunday at the request of law enforcement. He left Tennessee early. So he comes down and gives a statement then. And he, he set, should have set off a lot of bells and whistles, law enforcement to focus on the Adelsons in the Miami area. And, and they didn't do that really from uh, from what I've seen of police reports and testimony. And what they did was um, they allowed Jeff to have come back months later. He came back in August and he also came back in March. They still weren't really picking up on what he was saying about how this family dynamic works and how great of a setup it was to um, to get rid of Dan that way. And also keep in mind that I think he can also shed light on how upset Wendy was at the court rulings. Wendy, as, as I've submitted, was probably very fearful of losing her job. Um, maybe also worried about losing the, the, uh, her bar license as well. Also this judge that she had, um, was going to face was a no nonsense judge, much like judge Everett from what I, I gather. And this judge was probably going to hold her in contempt. And so that, um, that along with the fact that Dan had all the clout at the school, she was only an adjunct term professor. And so she, she was pretty much going to be, uh, have her life ruined in Tallahassee for the, uh, you know, life of the kids until they're both adults. So um, this became like a, a urgent matter to take care of uh, Dan. That was the only way to get her, for her to get full custody. And they're willing to pay a million dollars earlier to get um, the boys moved down at Dan's volition. But because Dan didn't want to do that, then uh, murder became the only uh, viable option in, in their minds. And uh so I think it's just a really, uh, uh, it all goes to show, and Jeff Kloss is going to be great to show that, uh, you know, this is, he was sort of like used as a fall guy. So I think that's another thing that's going to hurt hurt them as well to show it's a family affair. So, um, and I think it, he's going to be available to bring out any impeachment evidence. Uh, I know there's that one thing we talked about earlier where he can't mention uh, something about the hitmen in exchange for the TV. But um, I, I believe that is going to come in through other witnesses as well. And if they try to impeach uh, them or, um, Jeff Lacoste as well, then that's going to come out there. So I think, I think all the evidence is, uh, really, uh, going to come in that they need to, to convict. I, I was very, uh, satisfied with the rulings that this, uh, excellent judges come forward with. So, um, in any event, I, th I think, uh, he's going to get a fair trial, Charlie will, but the evidence is so strong that uh, jury's going to see, see it for what it is and, and convict him, uh, in, in quick fashion, just like, uh, the jury did for the Murdo case. Mm. Um, and here, Jeremy, I'm wondering if you can speak to this. Can wealth and high profile lawyers triumph over the pursuit of justice? Your take on this. This is obviously because of uh, the amount of additional defense players the uh, Charlie Adelson's bringing in here. Well, I think that's the main color that influences the outcome of trials. It's not black or white, but it's green. And I think that certainly does happen. I think we see cases that never go to the courtroom um, because of the money and connections. I know I've seen that in Tallahassee. And Tallahassee has a history of that going back to the 1940s. Uh, Granville Baker was found with two bullets in his head, and they ruled that a, a car accident. So 
It certainly does happen. Uh, I think in this case, it's a commendable effort in this case. They pulled out all the stops, law enforcement locally, the Tallahassee Police Department, the FBI. I think that we can be proud of the job that they did. I think we can be proud of the job that Georgia Kappelman has done and, you know, throughout the years of patiently, you know, going forward. The new state attorney that was elected in 2016, you know, I, I have no insight to his decision making, but apparently he said, you know, we've got the evidence, we've got the enhanced recording, let's go forward. Um, so this is a case here that I think maybe maybe justice was delayed. Uh, we don't really know why, but it's going forward now. But I, but I certainly think there are case after case where money does. Look at the young man that was uh, killed in Nashville. His father said it was an accident. His own truck ran over him. And, you know, I, I think everybody that looks at that case realizes that was, you know, not true. You know, there's a case up in Philadelphia where a woman um, was stabbed 20 something times and the local coroner and D.A. won't touch it. They say it was suicide. I mean, that's just total nonsense. That's but, uh, that's the Ellen Greenberg case. We've been covering that out of Philadelphia. That is a travesty of justice. And to your point, uh, the fiance's uncle was a very high powered judge and they were donors. So that's to your point. You know, and uh, you or I, I mean, if I had done what the Adelsons had done, you know, plotted with my family and so forth, I, I would have been in prison a long time ago. But, you know, you know, that's just the unfortunate nature of it. I think, you know, we have good people in the system trying to make it work and fighting hard to make it work. And uh, this case maybe shows an example of both sides of that. Uh, Chelsea Whitaker, uh, Joel, we have to finish Carl's list of a hundred plus reasons to indict Wendy before all of us have kicked the bucket. I'll tell you what, when there's a slow day with this trial or an in-between day, uh, we'll get Carl, uh, back on and we'll eventually get through that list. We'll definitely get there, uh, before, uh, there is, if there ever is, a trial for uh, Wendy Adelson, but uh, we won't hold our breath on that one. Um, by the way, Katie Cool Lady, I just ran over her. Here it is. Uh, his color, meaning Charlie, is worse in person. As I said, Katie Cool Lady, I believe, was in court today, and she is reporting firsthand. She is our court reporter, our de facto court reporter. Um, Carl Steinbeck, one of the interesting things here, and I think there's some confusion about this, is basically Don and Harvey and my mother, my own mother has said that she believes Harvey is much more complicit in this than everyone, uh, than anyone tends to believe. But they, as we know, neither of the parents have been in interviewed by investigators uh, since this happened since 2014 for nine plus years, Georgia, basically Kappelman, the prosecutor uh, got wind of the fact that if they were to testify in this case, they were going to, invoke their Fifth Amendment right. And she used uh, the power of the law to basically force their testimony. But that never happened. There was never an interview. And they are now, as a result, off the witness list. Can you just kind of give us all a primer, if you will, not a primer, but a primer on what happened here? And uh, does this hurt the state? Does it hurt the defense? Does it hurt neither side, in your opinion? Well, the, for some of the uh, background on it and the timeline of that, keep in mind that Georgia had subpoenaed Donna and Harvey 
um, well before the witness lists were uh, due and they were filed the day they were due for both the prosecution and defense. So this is something that the uh, prosecution had uh, decided to do before the defense counsel put them on the witness list as well. So, um, and then when they saw them on the defense witness list, they thought, well, you know what, we haven't talked to them yet. And if they're going to call them, we might as well find out what they got to say. And so, um, but the other factor was that uh, Rashbaum never talked to the uh, defense counsel for Don and Harvey. Keep in mind, he used to represent Don and Harvey uh, because he was representing Charlie. Uh, they had to find new counsel. So um, this new counsel theirs in Miami then um, said they weren't going to cooperate. And that's, that led them to be um, uh, the state to file a motion for contempt for them not cooperating and agreeing to testify. Keep in mind, there's that statute in Florida that says uh, the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply if the state gives you immunity. And so they thought that they were going to get uh, cooperation from them at that time, that, and especially when the judge ordered it. But uh, I guess it was worked out before um, they actually had to show up to the FBI office in Miramar, Florida, where they decided that because um, Rashbaum said he wasn't going to call him, then the point of them calling him probably wasn't worth uh, worth it um, in, in light of the fact that potentially that they, they want to prosecute them as well. Because once you give somebody immunity like that and you can't use anything they said against them, um, I know from when I've done that before, you pretty much firewall your whole office, whoever is working with that witness in that case, they cannot talk to or discuss or have anything to do with the uh, subsequent prosecution. So if they would have uh, interviewed them, let's say if it would have been Georgia and uh, Sarah, that's, that's part of the interview team sitting in on it, listening, um, or even listening to it after the fact, days or w weeks later, they, they would be pretty much precluded from being able to prosecute Don and Harvey uh, subsequent to that. So with that being the case and the firewall requirement, they probably just thought it wasn't worth the extra effort. They got enough on Charlie as, it, uh, as, uh, as evidence. And keep in mind also there's a uh, the settlement and agreement that they filed with the judge says that there will be no mention or reference by either party that Don or Harvey were unwilling to cooperate, unwilling to come to court, things of that nature. So it's it's really um, really something that I think is uh, actually going to be um, they're going to be speaking in in other ways. In the fact that the that they're not there to support their son on trial for murder, and keep in mind they're going to see the bump video of of Donna, so they're going to know exactly what Donna looks like, at least what she did back then. And so they're going to really get the real picture that even even the Adelsons are running scared and we don't want to set foot in the courtroom to even defend, help uh, support, um, emotionally support their own son. So I think it all just points a finger again at the uh, Adelsons uh, being a this is part of a family hit. And the juries pick up on that. They'll, they'll pick up on the body language of uh, of Charlie. Charlie just looks like he's defeated in the courtroom. He doesn't look like a guy trying to defend his honor of, of against an overreaching government that's falsely accusing him. Um, he looks like you can tell he's been in jail. It looks like he hasn't seen the sun in a couple of years. Um, his hair is all um, messy and whatnot. He, he just doesn't look presentable. And he's, then he's got a gray suit as well. It makes him look even more washed out. So um, he's just, he's just looking sort of like a defeated uh, defendant right now. And, and that, that alone jurors are going to pick up on. So I think everything's working out good for the prosecution. Mm. Uh, well said. Look at this. Say no to globalism. Liquid IV is really good. Yes, it is. I use it. I promise you I do use it. Got tons of packets in the house whenever I go to the gym. You get 20% off with the code STS, with the code STS at liquidiv.com. 
Gatorade.com. It uh, is way better, way healthier than uh, Gatorade, which I sometimes fall into that lap. So uh, look at this. Hello from South Africa. Got to love that. Uh, picked out um, a couple of sort of uh, dark horse possible witnesses. We'll rattle through these quickly because I've already taken way too much of these guys' time. And then uh, we'll get some uh, closing thoughts, and we'll be back on uh, – Charlie Adelson case tomorrow, and uh, we'll be back on it Thursday and uh, Friday and uh, till this trial ends. But um, one of the people here, uh, Jeremy Mutz, and I don't know if you know her, Marsha Rodriguez. She's a retired uh, Tallahassee PD digital forensic investigator. She downloaded the contents of Wendy Adelson's iPhone 4 back in 2014. There's been all this discussion about being able to access some of these WhatsApp messages. She could be the person that possibly gets that done. Is that something people should be looking out for? Or uh, is this a bit of hyperbole on my part? No, I think that would be something that uh, we'd want to look out for. The state may want to use some of that. They may want to just establish that Wendy had that app on her phone. You know, they may not be able to get farther than that, but it would at least be a, be a piece of their case showing that they had a means by which they could communicate and not have messages readily preserved and obtainable by law enforcement. Uh, here's another dark horse possible witness, uh, Carl Steinbeck, a guy named Chris Corbett. Uh, he is the supervisor of the Tallahassee Police Department's Technical Operations Unit. He analyzed cell phone records of the suspects in this case. He testified in previous trials about data showing both Luis Garcia and uh, I'm sorry, Sigfredo Garcia and Luis Rivera's travels from Miami to Tallahassee and back and a flurry of phone calls. One of the things he also testified, which is interesting, uh, he testified about a short call from Sigfredo Garcia to Harvey Adelson that happened 17 days before the murder. It's a short call, but is that a long problem here for the defense? I, th I think it is for um, I, I think it shows the, the uh, reach that uh, the Adelson's had to these hitmen. And I think it definitely shows a linkage there. How would they get Charlie's cell number? It wasn't his office number. And so by having his personal cell number, it just shows that these folks are definitely linked. It wasn't some other third party that decided to go on their own out of Miami and hire hitmen. It was the Adelson's. And so I don't know if that piece of evidence will necessarily come in um, because it's uh, having to do with Harvey instead of uh, Charlie. But I, I think there is evidence enough to show that Harvey was definitely uh, you know, aware of it, knowledgeable of it, and uh, was supportive of this as well. Yala. Okay, Jeremy, I don't know who you are, but I love your voice. Smooth like honey. He's a Southern gentleman. That's all you need to know. Uh, another uh, dark horse witness uh, here, potentially, um, Jeremy, is June Umchinda. Mentioned her a little bit off the top. She is Charlie's one-time girlfriend. Um, she relayed in testimony that Donna once said that she felt Dan was haunting her from the grave. She also talked about these $100 bills that are stapled together at his house and that he became extremely depressed once uh, Garcia and Rivera were arrested. Uh, how damning could she be to the defense potentially? Oh, very much so. I think it, again, to Charlie's state of mind, you know, I think you have the circumstantial evidence, but then if you have some direct evidence of what his state of mind was, the, the fact that he stapled his cash is almost like a signature in this case. It's almost like a fingerprint. 
in this case. So I think that's uh, a significant piece that they have. Uh, Lita Randolph, our Charlie's lawyers from Miami. Uh, Daniel Rashbaum, the lead uh, counsel, is from the Miami area. He is from South Florida. Um, Tim Jansen, who is from Tallahassee, has said that maybe that is a uh, a big mistake because it is a rather small, somewhat insular community where people know each other. Maybe he should. What do you think of that, Jeremy? Do you think that um, that Charlie would have benefited more from a Tallahassee attorney here? Well, we talked about a little bit of the psychology before, you know, that can be a disadvantage. Jurors will pick up on a number of things. They'll, they'll look at an attorney's shoes. They'll look at the attorney's suit. Is this attorney, you know, does he think he's better than us? That kind of thing. Um, Tallahassee is a small town, but then again, it, it's not that small that, you know, nobody can come from the outside and be successful. I think these are smart attorneys that can come in. They can know how to connect to the jurors. They can uh, conduct themselves well. I don't think they're at a, a huge disadvantage there. Um, but there is something to be said for, you know, knowing the courthouse, knowing the bailiffs and, and being there. Um, I can't I wouldn't minimize that advantage. Um, and there is a risk. You don't want to come to a, a place like Tallahassee and 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 talk down to the jurors. I had a case one time in very rural Apalachicola and an attorney from Tallahassee came down and, you know, I was a baby prosecutor. He was going to take me to school. And I think he was so, you know, good at what he did. The jurors felt sorry for me and our local officers. And, you know, you have this, this big attorney in, in a very nice suit beating up on the local cop and the local prosecutor that they see walking to lunch every day, you know, and I, and it, it went to his disadvantage. So, you know, it's like a lot of things. It's a, it's a, maybe a spectrum of, you know, where you fall. I think Mr. Rashbaum has a good presentation, a good personality. I think he'll, I think he'll fall into place of, you know, how to relate to the the local jury. Well, well it'll be interesting to see. I, I tend to agree with you on that. He's not um, overly ostentatious or showy like many people in Miami. So uh, I think he will, be able to, you know, I don't know, be able to uh, have some sense of uh, decorum with the uh, Tallahassians up there in uh, northern Florida. Uh, Yala says, Jeremy, you have a future in meditation apps or Audible with that voice. He should uh, do an, an Audible version of his own book. Uh, Moonchild Pink, John and Carl's channel is awesome. Jury mentor uh, trial. Um, McSpunky here. Uh, gifted one surviving the survivor. There's not a day where McSpunky's not gifting stuff. Um, please do this. Please smash that like button. It helps get the algorithm chugging. My kids will be forever grateful, as I as will I. Final um, potential witness here to talk about, and then we'll get into our final thoughts. Uh, Rob Adelson, um, Carl Steinbeck. He's obviously the estranged sibling. Uh, the third of the Adelson siblings, you got Wendy, Charlie, and then there's Rob. Uh, he's a doctor up in uh, the Albany, New York area. I, as far as I know, he only spoke uh, on that Wondery podcast. I have not heard him speak elsewhere. I might be wrong about that. But do you expect, Carl, to hear him on the witness stand? And uh, what purpose does he serve? Well, as I understand it, there wasn't a defense deposition for him, but I hope that he is called to set forth the family dynamics 
and to talk about the uh, oppression that he received from Donna for um, marrying or wanting and marrying the wrong person that she didn't approve of. And I think it just goes to show that if you select somebody that Donna doesn't approve of, you're going to receive her wrath and there's going to be uh, hell to pay, basically. And he finally had to shake loose from the um, from that kind of pressure and, and coercion and uh, was able to marry the person he genuinely loved. And so I think he also could be helpful to talk about the family dynamics of how what the family was telling him, because he was more in, in direct contact with uh, both his mom and dad and Charlie and Wendy uh, before the murder happened. Then once the murder happened, then uh, they started acting very strange. And he can talk to those kind of uh, behaviors that way. And so um, there's not a there's not a uh, sibling privilege like there is for spouses. So anything that Charlie said to him is fair game is uh, is what the prosecution could call also to show the state of mind and uh, admission by a party opponent kind of thing is a way they could get that in. So hopefully there's that kind of evidence. But uh, it remains to be seen. We don't we, we haven't seen anything out there yet. But that's my expectation. Uh, Katie, cool lady. Rob would be a great guest for you to get, Joel. I know Steve Cohen, who goes by Meve Moen. Uh, he's tried, and uh, we will try again, and eventually uh, we will get him. I can assure you that. It might take a while because he's dealing with all these trials. But Robin Ray, uh, Robin Ray says, dying to hear from Rob as we are, and uh, we'll soon find out if he's going to testify at this trial. Um, if you haven't subscribed, as the COE is saying, to STS yet, you should. She's right about that. Um, huge thanks to, uh, court TV's main anchor, Vinnie Politan, who you heard, uh, he said he started, obviously he was an attorney before, but then started in uh, North Bergen, New Jersey, doing local, uh, TV, worked his way all the way to the top, uh, now is the lead correspondent for court TV, gracious enough to, uh, grace us with his presence. And of course, huge thanks goes to both Jeremy and Carl Steinbeck. Uh, Jeremy specializes in criminal defense, family law, and divorce uh, law in Chipley, Florida. He has two books, not one, but two, and he's working on a third, The Chance I'll Take and Don't Call It Murder. Uh, Jeremy, your final thoughts tonight. Um, you expecting this to go how long? And then your final thoughts. Well, I'm hoping for a good outcome for the Markell family. And uh, it's an honor to be on the show with you, Joel, and with Carl and Vinny. I only, only regret that Carm's not on with us. Um, <laughs> Next time. Yeah, I, think this will, I think this will probably be a two-week trial, maybe three. Um, I don't think it'll be short, but I think the judge will keep it on track. And, uh, you know, I think he'll keep it moving. Uh, this is no small compliment to you, Carl Steinbeck, and this is no uh, affront to Jeremy Mutz, but Baker Canner says, Carl is hands down the best guest ever on STS, and we've had some of the biggest, brightest names in all the business. So, uh, Carl, getting uh, the accolades uh, justly deserved. Uh, great show, guys, from Katie Cool Lady. Katie, cannot wait to meet you. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, retired Carl Steinbeck, a nearly 30-year judge advocate for the U.S. Army Judge Advocate General Corps. He's also a combat veteran. Now he has his own criminal defense firm, and he hosts his own YouTube channel called Jury Trial Mentor with his brother, John Steinbeck. Your final thoughts here tonight, Carl. 
Well, I, I just think we've been all agonizing about why it's taken so long. Dan Markell was murdered over nine years ago, as you said. And so I, I think that uh, us waiting for Charlie's day in court is finally here. And they're going to start calling witnesses in a few days. And I, I think there's finally going to be some justice against the Adelsons. I think whatever political connections they had to delay this thing, that appears to be the case. I think those are uh, going to be over. And I'm looking forward to more arrests and convictions. Hmm. Uh, Debbie Blair, if you're at the trial next week, come find us. We will be in Tallahassee. Quick programming note, two shows tomorrow night, 7 p.m. We're back on Charlie Adelson and the Dan Markell murder case, 9 p.m. tomorrow night. We are doing the disastrous Delphi uh, situation, and we're going to have Brett uh, from the Prosecutor's Podcast and possibly his host, Alice, as well. They just won Best Podcast of the Year at CrimeCon, the Prosecutor's Podcast. Uh, along with them, I'm trying to get Susan Hendricks, formerly of CNN, who wrote the book Down the Hill about the case, and got News Nation's correspondent Laura Engel joining at 9 p.m. tomorrow night. She just got back from Delphi, Indiana, and has a lot to say. She was in court for this hearing when the defense withdrew from the case. And then uh, Wednesday, 5 p.m., we're doing the Caitlin Armstrong Love Triangle. Thursday, right back to Dan Markell. And then Friday with Scott Duffy and Phil Waters, America's most respected detective. We will get back in to the uh, Charlie Adelson, Dan Markell case as well. Until then. Love you, America. Love you, New Jersey. Love you, Florida, Tallahassee, Texas, the Republic of Ireland, Tasmania, everywhere near and far between. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.